Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the home studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn is attending a megachurch service in Tennessee with 14,000 other worshippers and is unable to join <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah. fun. We should do a remote recording we from should. there. That'd be great. It's, I'm sure there's social distancing. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to be joined by a journalist I have long admired, Max Fisher. Max is one of the writers of the Interpreter column of the New York Times. Uh, the Interpreter is really one of my favorite things to read in the Times. Max and his fellow columnist, Amanda Taub, do an outstanding job explaining things that we see happening in the world, uh, adding all that context that a reported story can't always get in there, uh, and managing somehow never to sound condescending, which is actually a really hard thing to do. Uh, Max Fisher, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, man. I have been listening to the podcast for almost a decade, so it is really, really fun for me to finally get to join. Oh, fantastic. That's great. I did not know that. Uh, before we plunge into the main topic of the day, maybe you could first give our listeners a little background on yourself uh, and this plum gig you've had for a few years now as the interpreter columnist. Uh, you were at The Atlantic and at Vox previously, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So I, like all good things, I came into it by a combination of chance, good timing, and connections. Um, I started at The Atlantic at a time, you know, kind of mid-financial crisis where there was no such thing as a foreign reporting budget and there was no such thing as a steady reporting job. So I got started for the first few years in just blogging, basically, and just kind of writing quick analysis-led stuff on what was happening in the world and turn that into a gig at first the Washington Post and then at Vox.com and then finally ended up at the Times in 2016 when um, things were looking a little bit greener and I was talking to a couple editors there. We knew we wanted to launch something that took the kind of good from that bloggy era of kind of explanatory writing, you know, speaking directly to readers, um, trying to bring in a lot of like interesting expertise and ideas based stuff and combine it with kind of traditional New York Times on the ground reporting. And 
weren't really sure what that looked like, but just started it out and tried iterating and trying and ended up with what we have, which is, like you said, kind of, you know, explanatory takes on the news, but that involve, you know, character driven narratives on the ground reporting, all that good traditional timesy stuff. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a great combination. It somehow works. I'm really glad to see that that marriage worked out. Um, so I'm going to get down into the substance of what we want to talk about today. With this pandemic raging and with China so often in the news, as often as not in the news in, in relation to the pandemic, uh, one thing that really fascinates me, well, actually it often frustrates me, is the way American media has covered what I see as these two co-joined catastrophes, COVID-19 on the one hand, uh, and also the ever-worsening relationship between the United States and China. Uh, I've seen you voice frustration over this, too, on Twitter, and that's part of what prompted me to reach out. But uh, first, I want to hear about the way you personally processed news about the pandemic. Uh, you're a smart guy writing on international affairs, so maybe you could recollect for us as much as you can uh, how you first heard about it and how it really started to register as something really important and, and then as something really urgent. Uh, and, and finally, I guess, is something that was pretty much all-consuming. Uh, do you remember any of the early conversations that you had about it in the newsroom back in January or even December, if, if that's possible? Yeah, so I actually will say, and uh, I think I really missed the importance of it initially. Uh, My first conversations in the newsroom about it were you know, late December, early January, I remember complaining to some friends in the newsroom that it was really hard to get anything on the front page that wasn't about coronavirus because our bosses were just obsessed with it. And, you know, come on, it's a big deal, but is it really two or three <laughs> stories on the front page every single day a big deal? Which, of course, is exactly what it turned out to be. But my initial reading of it, which... You know, I think other people might have also had, but I know I definitely did, which was to think of this as kind of a China story and kind mm. of a SARS 2.0. And when I when I look back, I think that a lot of how I was initially processing it was as something I'd kind of seen before. We had seen public health crises in China. This was obviously a much bigger one and was really severe and the government's response was really severe. But I mentally kind of classified it in ways that particularized it to China. I was thinking about um, the Chinese political system and the kind of dysfunction and flaws in it that we were seeing in how it was slow to respond, not handling the response particularly well, which is something that I wrote about back in January. And I think all of the things that we said about that were true, but I really, when I look back on it now, I think that one thing that I really overrated was how much the initial outbreak was explained by factors particular to China, by it kind of being a place that had big public health crises, by it being a place that had this kind of dysfunction in the political system that made it really hard for it to control local outbreaks because of the pressure between local and the periphery, or excuse me, the, the center and the periphery. And so like when I go back and read my stories on it, I don't think there's anything in there that strikes me as wrong. I think all of it has aged really well. But something that I didn't say and that a lot of the early coverage didn't say that really sticks out to me now is, you know, one reason China is having such trouble with this outbreak is this virus is just really hard. 
it's it's really severe. It spreads really quickly, and there's a lot that we don't understand about it. I think we were really leaning into the kind of China specific explanations of it in a way that I don't think we got anything wrong because of that. But it looks very different when you look back now. When you look back at China's outbreak now. A lot of it seems like, well, of course, this virus is is terrible and it's really hard to control. And that was just not something that was evident to a lot of us early on. Well, that's impressively self-aware. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's funny because it's, it's almost exactly the same reaction that Jeremy talked about on the show when we did our anniversary show. You know, we, we he talked about having seen it as sort of SARS redux and essentially a China problem as well. So uh, <laughs> you're certainly not alone. Somebody who's job it was to focus on China every day, uh, kind of tended to see it in the same way. Yeah. And I think there was kind of a lot of, I don't know, I think, th- I think that the Times really benefited from having a lot of people in senior leadership who had been there for the SARS crisis, and so knew how big of a deal that was in a way that I think a lot of Americans and American reporters who were not there for it, like I wasn't there for it, did not immediately know about. So I, I think there was, it was kind of a, a double-edged sword, the way that a lot of people saw it as SARS 2.0 initially. Yeah, SARS itself was a double-edged sword. I mean, in that it was both severe in China and uh, it, having gone through reporting it then, you would either see it as you know just a China story or as something truly global in size and, and enormous. But um, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. There were a lot of people in senior leadership. I mean, Joe Kahn, I guess, had just left China right before SARS probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, back before so many of the journalists for the U.S. publications were expelled from China, uh, yeah, all the major papers and all the wire services uh, had people not only on the ground in China, but actually on the ground in Wuhan. And they were doing, I think, incredibly brave reporting. Um, they went beyond the usual hazards of just surveillance and harassment. Not like those are to be dismissed, but uh, they were also just risking their lives in these in these full-blown virus hotspots. They were you know, talking to frontline healthcare workers, they were talking to Wuhan residents. Uh, I don't think that they collectively failed to humanize the disease at all. And yet there was this disconnect. I mean, somehow the average reasonably well-informed, high-information, cosmopolitan American today uh, probably can tell you, uh, based on this media coverage, uh, only that China covered up the outbreak, they failed to notify global health authorities in a timely manner, they failed to enact measures that would have kept the disease from spreading in China and killing thousands. And then mm-hmm. toward the end of January, after these precious weeks were lost, they started this draconian, it's always the word draconian, lockdown mm-hmm. of this huge city and then of a nation. They were welding people into their apartments. And so, um, you know, my, my notional well-informed American would probably maybe also say that later on they lied about the numbers, that they were totally, you know, uh, underreporting the number of deaths and, then they went and spread a conspiracy theory about where it actually came from, that it came somehow from the U.S. Uh, does that sound like it's in the ballpark for this above-average American I've described? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you're hitting on two kind of separate things that converged on this story. Mm-hmm. One is that one thing that I noticed in nine years spent in Washington, D.C., is that there is this 
extremely widespread misconception about China that everything is centralized and top down and there's always a plan somewhere and everything that happens is because of a you know 100 year strategy laid out by the communist party in Beijing and you know of course Michael Pillsbury <laughs> I, I mean it's everywhere it's yeah, you know yeah. it's on the right it's on the left I mean yeah there there are people who I think have some culpability for promoting that but it's just this weird stereotype that has always stuck around and I think a lot of that comes out of like self-reflection about failures of the American political system is like gosh if only we were more like the Chinese who always have a plan and always have a centralized strategy and of course that's not true and that was something that I think is a big misconception about the initial failures in China to confront coronavirus is that if you talk to people who know the Chinese system really well their first reaction, which I think has really been borne out by things we've learned subsequently, is this is a failure of communication and misaligned political incentives between the center and the periphery, right. between, you know, controlling the virus and controlling the response to the virus. I mean, letting this virus run out of control it is not good for China. Do you know no, what I mean? Not, right. And I think like all the time, and this is something I would raise all the time with folks in Washington, D.C., who I would hear kind of repeat this misconception about China, is that do you remember this 2001 study on what happened when China passed this big policy change that said all that the provincial governments were not going to be held responsible for the level of water pollution? Did you hear yeah. about this? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And everybody just moved their factories to the edges of the provinces and overall water <laughs> pollution went way up, but it yeah. went down in individual provinces that did this. And the same I just thing found that air pollution in Beijing, you know, it just moves out of the Beijing airshed and into Hebei. And yeah. Right, exactly. And that's when you see that, it's like, oh, okay, I see the ways that this system is designed makes it well-equipped to deal with some challenges and really poorly equipped to deal with others. And I think that's something that has been an enduring misconception, including around coronavirus, is seeing all of the f***-ups in China and thinking this must be towards some grand plan and that maybe that plan is benevolent, maybe it's nefarious, but we should assume that it's, it's centralized. And I think that the second kind of misconception and this is the one thing that i think looking back i do feel some kind of regret about for how we in the media collectively covered this uh -huh. is that our our misconception of this or not our misconception our perception of this as particular to a lot of what's unique about china continued into how we understood and thought about china's response uh, right. I mean, if you could kind of transport yourself back to like January and February when China was really starting the lockdown, it looked certainly to me and I think to a lot of people just crazy. I mean, citywide lockdowns, no transit between cities, families forcibly separated if somebody was testing positive, people getting tracked against their will by the government. And I think to a lot of us, it looked like, well, this is just China. This is knee-jerk authoritarianism because, you know, that's their answer to everything. And it's going to do more harm than good. The cure is worse than disease at best. And at worst, this is a cynical ploy to use the coronavirus to kind of exert more social control, which is something I still hear a lot of people say. Right. And I think we had, at the time, there were reasons to think that, but... 
you know, now we know how bad this virus is. And we know that those are the kind of measures that it has taken in order to control a major outbreak. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of democratic countries in Asia that have used those same strategies. So obviously we wouldn't attribute like South Korea using contract tracing apps to knee-jerk South Korean authoritarianism. Right. But I think that perception is really endured. And I think it's problematic because that's the one at least potential plan that has worked in controlling a major China size or US size outbreak. You know, maybe maybe it didn't. Maybe those numbers are overstated or wrong, but at least it's possible that's the only time it's worked, but it's completely taboo in Western countries. And I think a lot of that is because of that initial reaction we all had to dismiss it as cynical or knee-jerk authoritarianism rather than as something that might actually be required by some of how this virus works. Exactly, exactly. Um, just now I was talking about how I, I don't think, as some people have suggested, that media coverage in the initial weeks of it in any way dehumanized it or, or, or otherized uh, mm-hmm. the, the disease in China. I mean, I, I you know, know a lot of these people who I said, as I said, did some very, very brave reporting, and they really did focus on the human story. Very, yeah. very emp- deeply empathetic. And yet there is this disconnect, this, this, I, I, I'm trying to figure out why the U.S. was so complacent. I mean, was it just what you were suggesting that there was this sort of, you know, emphasis on regime type as an ex- explanation? And, you know, well, we're not authoritarian, therefore we, we won't suffer as much. Or what, what do you think it was? I mean, I feel like it wasn't just the Trump administration itself. I mean, the whole country yeah. was in denial about the likelihood that this disease, I mean, which, this disease had already proven itself to be really infectious, really, really virulent. Uh, and we live in an age of air travel. I mean, of course it was going to make its way here. What was yeah. there behind the denial? What do you think? I mean, you've, you've put I your th- finger on one thing. I, I think you're, I think you're right that part of the mystery here is how a disease that was so well humanized did not it didn't penetrate to a lot of us in the U.S. and I think in Western countries generally as something that was a threat to us too. I think part of that is that we attribute kind of instinctively any suffering in China to the particulars of its political system. Mm. And I think that it was easy to see that we as people are suffering in China and that's very sad. And everything that I've read in the last year or two that talks about people suffering in China, the cause of that is often the Chinese government and the Chinese political system. And that's, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, we're coming on a lot of Hong Kong stories, a lot of Xinjiang stories. So I think it's it, it's easy for me to understand how people would hear about something terrible happening in China and attribute it to the government and the political system and therefore assume it's not going to come for us. I think part of it is also the memory of SARS as something sure. that was really, really scary in Asia, but didn't really come to hit Western countries. Yeah, um, Toronto, Vancouver, but yeah, that was it. No. no, of course, you're right, you're right. It did It did show up to some degree, but I think for enough of us were spared of it, that it yeah, was easy yeah. to feel like something that was not going to come for us. And I think a lot of it probably, you know, links in specific ways or fuzzy ways to the kind of rising sinophobia that we've been seeing the last few years. And there is just a sense that it's it's not that those lives 
don't matter and that that suffering doesn't matter and that it's not real. I think people do feel it and it does feel really consequential and important. Hmm. But I think it's it's separating in a way that makes it makes it hard for us to make the connection that we're all part of the same it's going to sound really cheesy, but part of the same human collective that a virus could jump across pretty easily, that it's kind yeah. of this different world and different universe that might as well be on, you know, the far side of the moon. Well, this sort of backdrop of xenophobia, I mean, it's both uh, enabled the Trump administration to really seize on this China as culprit narrative, but also it's exacerbated it uh, in, in a lot of ways. We've seen him do the whole thing, you know, time and time again. It's a bewildering number of different scapegoats he likes to use, you know, Obama, Hillary, the deep, deep state. But uh, his number one go-to seems to have been China, I mean, from even before uh, he was elected. But the stakes just seem like they're insanely high right now. Uh, he, he stopped saying Chinese virus after, you know, like a week, I guess, of it back in March. Uh, and I was actually momentarily hopeful, uh, but now it's it's only gotten worse. Uh, earlier this month, he blamed China directly for what he called an attack worse than Pearl Harbor and worse than 9-11. Um, it's been obviously, you know, fanning the flames of anti-Asian racism. And I've talked about that a lot. Uh, yeah. But it's also, you know, alienating American allies. We had our G7 partners who couldn't even agree on a statement because Pompeo insisted on using that Trumpian language, you know, Wuhan virus to, to, to refer to it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been like undercutting multinational institutions, like, well, obviously the WHO, but worse. Yeah. Uh, and it's even putting countries that are, are otherwise, you know, generally on board with this kind of US-led get tough on China program like Australia uh, between a rock and a hard place. Does does this feel familiar to you? I mean, I'm going to be honest. Uh, what, what really made me reach out to you is I saw you tweeting about 2002 in the run up to the Iraq yeah. war. And yeah. And you, you had talked about that. Yeah. I mean, you were pretty young in 2002, but is there a deja vu quality to this nevertheless? I think that the the echoes to me are loud enough to be really worrying. And I don't mean that in a sense that I think we're, you know, the United States is trying to build up a case to go to war with China. I don't think that that is on the table at all. But the the, the kind of patterns in... The rhetoric, the patterns in the way that you hear administration officials way out ahead of the actual intelligence and the actual information about what is happening in China and China's level of culpability, the way that you hear them kind of circling around and sometimes explicitly making this case for intentionality, that yeah, China yeah. intentionally allowed or encouraged the virus to spread to the rest of the world. It... it it's, it's happening in a lot of very similar contours in terms of messaging from the administration where you have actually a lot of competing claims that they make as to what's happening, but they all converge on a common narrative, which is that China is at least to blame and possibly did this deliberately, and that therefore we have to take some action to punish China. That's just, it's, it's baked in to so much of the different claims and language from the administration, even as those claims change week to week. And that is, that's the kind of biggest echo in my mind. And I think is really worrying, even if the effect is, is so far and probably likely to remain very different. Like you said, it's this kind of hijacking of the international response into us versus them, United States versus China competition. That's not the same thing as, you know, an invasion of Iraq, but it's it's still 
has some pretty real consequences for both you know how we fight the coronavirus and also more generally in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I just this weekend finished your former colleague Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. And oh, nice. What, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about it was just the candor with which he talks about the media's role as a political actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that because I, I think in, in the early weeks of this, I was concerned that the way that we were reporting this story uh, was contributing to to some of this, um, you know, we were yeah. focusing on regime type, but I, I think, you know, it, 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 in the final analysis, I don't, I don't find the media, whatever that means, culpable really. But uh, I mean, for, 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 you know, the, the sort of lack of alacrity with which America responded, but this, what's happening right now with this sort of ginning up of real hostility toward China. I, I wonder what the media's role in this. I mean, I know a lot of these reporters, it's hard for me to believe any of them would allow themselves to be spun by the administration, maybe except Josh Rogan. Um, <laughs> I want to go look up that story about him getting punched in the face and by a comedian. I want to find out about that. Anyway, it, it, your, your own paper has published pieces, though, that quote anonymous sources in different agencies, all purporting to have evidence of a lab leak that nobody has subsequently produced. What's going on here? I mean, how it's a tough thing, obviously, because, you know, you guys do rely yeah. On, on, you know, former security officials saying this or that, uh, anonymous sources all the time. I, I don't know if you have a rule of thumb about, about this. Um, is it just caveat emptor? Uh, you know, just you say, Hey, this is an anonymous source. We don't have the actual. So take this with a right. grain of salt or right. what do you do? I mean, it, it's when I kind of look at the media role now versus Iraq. I think on the one hand, there's a lot of lessons that were learned from 2002 that it feels to me like you see in how the media generally is covering the administration's claims now. You know, and I remember back at 2002, 2003, there was a lot of kind of innuendo and insinuation and half-supported claims about Saddam Hussein building weapons of mass destruction. Right. And a lot of the coverage, it was more, it was more critical then I think it's remembered for, but it did typically start with the assumption that this is a credible claim and there's probably something to it. And, you know, maybe into the story we'll get into, well, people aren't sure, the evidence isn't there, but the Bush administration was very good on using the media's kind of obligation to cover these things without specifically taking a stance on it, and especially using non-falsifiable claims right. where the media can't say, no, Saddam Hussein doesn't have weapons of mass destruction because, you know, how is a reporter supposed to know that? There's how no way to find out. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that when I, when I see now, there's a lot more front-loaded skepticism about the administration's claims, you know, that it leaked from a lab, that... Um, China allowed it to spread deliberately. You hear a lot more at the very top of the story and in the headlines saying, you know, intelligence agencies dispute this. There's not evidence for it. And that, I think, is really encouraging because I don't think that we're going to get this time around what we got in 2002, which is, you know, someone got led by the administration to go interview some deep cover source who said, oh, yeah, Saddam did 9-11 or whatever. I don't think we're going to have that. But... No, Judith, Trump Judith Rogan. I mean, Judith Miller. Right. 
in June. <laughs> That's quite a Freudian slip. Uh, yeah, no Judith Miller. Um, but I mean, you still see them playing pretty aggressively with the kind of the non-falsifiable claims, the, you know, the negatives that you can't prove. And I think it's not for nothing that a month ago or two months ago, the idea that coronavirus came from this lab that is in Wuhan was seen as a kooky conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And now today it is seen, it, it gets much more discussion. It's still seen as disputed and it doubt, but you hear about it much more. You will, you know, hear about it on the nightly news or read about it in major newspapers. And the coverage of it is very critical of the administration's claims, but it's out there and it's everybody has heard about it now and nobody can say that it's false. So what you're getting is a lot of, you know, well, the administration says this, China says this, there's a lot of problems with both of their narratives. So who knows? And of course, we'll probably never know for sure but it seems, based on what all the scientists are saying, that it, it's quite unlikely that it came from a lab, but you can't rule it out 100%. So, I mean, just the fact that you and I are talking about it goes right. to show that they've been pretty Fairly effective. successful, yeah, in, yeah. in getting that. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with it, of course, because the low-information voter is going, going to not read, you know, even beyond that first paragraph. Even if it's top-loaded, even if there's a lot of caveating in the second or the third paragraph, they're not going to get that far. I mean... And the other thing is, is look, even people who are, you know, water carriers for, for the administration in the House and the Senate, like Tom Cotton, he's backed off on this bioweapons claim. I mean, in, in, in the face of fact-based skepticism about that claim in the scientific community, but, but okay. he's stuck pretty fast to this whole lab leak theory. And I, I, you know, you and me, we know that there's a world of difference between these claims, but for that mm -hmm. notional low information voter out there, look, I mean, they're playing, they're, they're assuming that it, there's going to be conflation. A lab leak theory is, is not too far off in their minds from a, uh, bioweapons theory. And, right. and, and I've seen it conflated constantly. I mean, it's just right. really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, there's something I remember from 2002, 2003 is that the Bush administration initially came out with its claim that, you know, Saddam helped Al Qaeda do September 11th. And they right. backed off of that pretty quickly in the face of a lot of, you know, criticism from the media. But it still stuck around enough that years later, at something like, you know, it's 55, 60, 65 percent of Americans think that there is something to that. And this administration is in some ways even more aggressive about pushing the kind of, you know, Saddam did 9-11 version of this because the bar is set. It's not, it's not fair to say the bar is set. We are so accustomed to the idea that President Trump says things that are not true. That when he right. said a couple of weeks ago, um, I forget what it was exactly, but he, he said that, you know, oh, there are questions that China let this virus out deliberately in order to spread the pain around. Yeah, he did. Uh, and, you know, Rudy Giuliani is out on his podcast, which apparently he has, oh, saying Christ. that, you know, China doesn't value human life the same way that, quote, we do. And, you know, we need to seriously consider the possibility that they spread the virus deliberately. I mean, these things are out there. And they're also social media usage is much more common now. And it's very easy for claims like this to spread there. So I think it's we can look at the kind of the front page of the paper and say, okay, we've got this, we're doing a nice job, but still be honest with ourselves that, that that's not how information like this spreads, especially in the absence of a compelling counter narrative, 
which I think is is really contributing to this. They're doing everything they can to sort of encourage this context in which that is more plausible, that's more believable. I mean, this is the thing that really worries me about this plunge toward conflict. It's that totalistic way in which they now frame every aspect of the competition. I mean, mm-hmm. it, look, it's it's like there's always a really strong moral component now. You have to mm-hmm. recount, not just, you know, grievances over trade practices or IP theft or industrial policy. It's not just national security issues like, you know, island building in the South China Sea, but it's always also the extra legal detention of Uyghurs, the, the techno-authoritarian, you know, surveillance system, uh, Hong Kong and all that stuff. I mean, it's not just mm-hmm. the extremists. I mean, this is like part of, of the narrative on China now. And it's to the point where, you know, even if you want to call for a less overtly hostile approach to China, you first mm-hmm. have to run through this whole litany of, of, of sins and, that, yeah. I mean, you know, you're on, it really undermines your ability, you know, the strength of your message after that. I mean, I've often wondered how it would fall on American ears if Chinese media or, you know, Chinese politicians were to take a similar approach. I mean, that if they're going to, you know, if they're going to criticize the United States on, on some security related issue that they include in that a condemnation of, you know, border separations or redlining or, or, or cops killing another innocent, you know, black man or, school shootings or mass incarceration or whatever. I mean, the homelessness. You just don't see that, though. I wonder how it would fall on other years. Yeah. I mean, I think there is there is some of that, right? There is some of a not, not maybe in the same ways as you have in the U.S., but there is kind of this, you know, the other side's system is inherently rotten, and that means that it, it's a bad country and that, therefore, every bad thing that you can say about it is true. Right, but can imagine if you if you were say uh, in an analogous position to where I am right now, if, if you were in mm-hmm. China calling for an approach that was warmer toward the United States, that wanted to improve relations with the U.S., and you still had you were still yeah. expected to recite this litany of of American sins. I mean, that just would seem patently absurd to me. Um, but this is this is working yeah. uh, for the GOP. Um, I don't. I don't know if you saw Politico published this strategy paper uh, that was produced for Senate Republicans uh, by an outfit called O'Donnell and Associates. Uh, it was called the the Corona mm-hmm. Big Book. Um, it was dated April seventeenth. I mean, it's it's quite a specific guide on how to blame China in this. I mean, it's got that whole litany. It's got a timeline. You saw this thing, right? I did, yeah, and I think you were actually the one who who first pointed it out to me. Uh, okay, and it's great. it's actually it's kind of amazing looking back on it. You know, I guess it's what like a month and a month two ago, weeks old yeah. now. Yeah, how much this you know maybe coincidentally maybe not echoes a lot of the messaging from the administration and from the administration's allies in Congress and in the media, and especially the thing that really sticks with me is that. The actual kind of factual claims in the document, which, which you know, is all about assigning blame to China and kind of saying this is all China's fault. So therefore, you know, the Trump administration shouldn't be considered to be at fault itself. The actual kind of facts of China's culpability are, um, I mean, I think I could do a better job of putting together facts about China being ultimately at fault for this. <laughs> like one of their one of their big data points is that, you know, China's because of its the flaws in its political system because of its authoritarian nature delayed its response by six days and right. you know <laughs> yeah well like living in New York City I would love a government whose worst sin was that it delayed its response to coronavirus by six days that sounds pretty <laughs> appealing to me but it's but 
But what the document builds up to, this first line, which I think is the really important one, is that China caused the pandemic. Right. And it kind of plays right on this line of intentionality. And I'm sure if you talk to the authors of it and say, whoa, 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 it sounds like you're saying that China did this deliberately, that it's it's kind of cast in such a way that they could say with a straight face, you know, that's not what we're claiming. We're just claiming that, you know, China's failures led it to spread. But you hear this line dancing and sometimes line crossing so often in the administration that it, it's hard to completely dismiss the possibility that they want people to come away with the perception that somehow China did this deliberately. Like Pompeo's big interview where he talked about this, which was a really weird one because he makes claims, he backs off of them, he kind of contradicts himself. But his big point is, uh, this quote that I actually wrote down, I think the whole world is united in understanding that China brought this virus to the world. And that does seem like what a lot of people want Americans to take away is that it it's China's fault in a way that sounds intentional. It brought is it's an active mm-hmm. verb, right? I mean, it's an active mm-hmm. verb, right? It's mm-hmm. just yeah, brought this virus. I wish that it were contained just to the Republican side of the aisle. What do you make of the Biden campaign's approach to making China part of its strategy against Trump? I mean, there have been I th- from the campaign. I think there's been two ads. Uh, one of them, you know, not, not, I, I actually didn't object to the second campaign ad, but there was also another one from a pack. It's really pretty hardcore China bashing. Uh, what yeah. do you think of this approach? You with the ad where it says, you know, Trump didn't do enough to confront China and he didn't close off travel from China quickly enough. Right, right. But there's, it was worse than that. There was, you know, the ominous music, the sort of red That's undertones. Right. There's, you yeah. Know I mean, that, yeah. The whole atmospherics yeah. of it was was extremely sort of anti-China. And, you know, obviously there's been a lot of pushback. Um, and optimistically, I mean, I hear that the campaign is listening. You know, some people who were involved in the campaign have, have communicated that to me. But uh, what, what do you what do you think of this approach generally? It's It's been criticized pretty, pretty broadly, I hope. Yeah. I mean, politically, it's it's. Just to take the the cynical, pure electoral view, which is not sure. the most important one, but just to kind of start off with that, it's, and, it's and hard. Unfortunately, to s- the one that always prevails. But <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. It's it's hard to see this working, just because I think one thing that we have learned about this administration, and you know, going back to 2015, early on in the campaign, when a lot of other Republicans kind of saw the success of Trump's uh, nativist and xenophobic and anti-immigrant rhetoric and tried to outbid him on it, to try to like take some of that electoral territory from him, is that Trump's kind of political superpower is that he is not one iota constrained by the norms and niceties against how far people are willing to take that kind of language. He will always go further. So the idea that Biden is going to outbid Trump on, you know, it's China's fault, maybe it's the fault of Chinese people, you know, however you want to read between the lines of this ad, just does not seem politically viable, because he he is always going to be much able, he's going to always be able to go much further than someone like Joe Biden is going to be able to go, even if we thought that that was a good thing for him to try to do that. Like arguably much more important kind of normative moral grounds 
Um, I get why people are concerned about this. It's a moment of really drastically spiking anti-Asian hysteria, fear, racism, conspiracy mongering. And one thing that we really know about how people interpret conspiracy theories is that when they, or not just conspiracy theories, actually, I should say also just broadly kind of hateful sentiment, xenophobic sentiment, is Mm -hmm. that when they perceive that there's a political consensus around it, they become, you know, a hundred thousand times more likely to take it on as their own beliefs. Um, It's this whole concept called like, I think it's elite cues and elite signaling. But if people get the message that, okay, the political parties disagree on so much, but they agree that I should be scared of China and hold China at fault for this coronavirus, that that is going to... um, become something that takes hold in a really deep and widespread way. And I don't think that we can say with certainty how far people are going to be able to take that belief, given how far people have already taken, let's say, for example, hostility towards Central American immigrants in the last few years. Right. I'm not just worried about how it's going to play out with Asian Americans, you know, a community to which I belong. Uh, Obviously, I'm very worried about that. But there's also, this is going to go to Trump into being even harder on China, and it, it's it's going to produce even more deleterious effects. It's going to foreclose the possibility of cooperating on other you know future pandemics. It's going to foreclose the possibility of cooperating on climate change. It's it's already look uh, you know on the day that we're recording this, uh, Tom Cotton and what's her face, uh, Marsha Blackburn uh, proposed this piece of legislation that would ban. Chinese graduate students in the STEM fields from from uh, getting mm-hmm. visas to the United States. It's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think you're right to worry about both both what kind of happens on the fringes uh, that, you know, how far are folks like Tom Cotton willing to go? Because they're always going to be both willing and maybe even desired to go further than whatever the central consensus is. But also moving that consensus point on right. China in a way that, just like you say, is going to make it really hard to... You know, even if you don't think cooperation is a good idea, maybe having a level of antagonism that leads the WHO to be sidelined because you can't agree on something like a common response to a global pandemic is not optimal. I mean, something I've been really struck by is in the last couple of months, it has become kind of bedrock conventional wisdom in a lot of the nonpartisan Washington policy community that China controls the World Health Organization, that there was some kind of conspiracy between China and the WHO to prevent information from getting out about the coronavirus. And, you know, the kind of policy people stories or, or, I'm sorry, like policy people op-eds and like think tank op-eds that just take as a given that China controls the WHO. And at one point I looked into the funding numbers and China is like the 10th or 11th rank <laughs> funder. I mean, they just their influence financially over it is just not relevant. But it is just taken now as just an article of faith that any international institution that includes China more than we would like for it to is corrupted and untrustworthy. And I think I think the kind of Washington consensus doesn't realize how much it is taking on these kind of Trumpist ideas of distrust of international institutions if they include countries that we don't like, which is part of the whole point of those institutions. Again, it's the elite signaling. It's the Overton window that's been flung mm-hmm. wide open, and it's open mm-hmm. season right now on, on anything. Anything goes. Don't say anything bad at all about China. 
Uh, and of course, I mean, I, it should be said, Beijing is not exactly helping the situation. So, Max, it's now Friday afternoon, the day after we taped, and President Trump has just made an announcement uh, on a couple of issues. He lambasted China again for the familial sins. He used Wuhan virus again. We haven't heard that in a while. Then, as he said he's done before, he, he imputed intentionality uh, with that erroneous claim about China having allowed flights out of Wuhan to the rest of the world despite the lockdown. Uh, he announced that the U.S. was breaking ties with the World Health Organization. And then he went the full Monty with the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, uh, the upshot of which is that instead of using targeted sanctions, you know, sort of Magnitsky-like sanctions that would have been allowed under the HKHRDA, uh, he said he's going to place Hong Kong under the same tariff and, and travel regime as China. What did you make of all of that? So the big question here to me is, what does this tell us about the Trump administration goals and motives on this kind of set of China-related issues that he's all wrapping together? And what can we kind of deduce about where we're going from that? And I think a lesson I've learned over and over uncovering the Trump administration foreign policy is that it's really easy to overstate the degree to which there is a plan or a strategy. And what might look like a strategy often ends up being some combination of impulsive pride and defensiveness by the president that then comes out as policy or gets abetted by kind of various administration officials who are maybe working independently towards their own ends or their kind of goals. And and I feel like you can really see that here. Trump's insistence on blaming China for American coronavirus deaths gets read a lot as campaign positioning and, uh, you know, maybe. But, you know, we see time and again that when he's getting criticism, he reverts to conspiracies and blame deflecting like he's doing here in ways that often end up undercutting his own campaign or political messaging. And I just don't think we can dismiss, given how much conspiracy mongering and finger pointing was in this announcement, that these policies are as much or more about the president's personal impulses than any kind of political strategy, much less foreign policy strategy. But whatever motivated this, it does seem to follow a really clear through line in his foreign policy, which is that when Trump feels politically weakened or on the back foot, you sort of pick the country that's in front of him in terms of relevance to the day's news and politics and pursue an approach of just maximal belligerence and maximal hostility towards that country. I think there are folks in the administration like Pompeo who do see that kind of maximalism and aggression as both serving some greater strategic end and as ideologically desirable. But for Trump, I, I think it's not crazy to conclude that it's also just a lot about looking and feeling personally strong and tough. Um, a bit, but in terms of the actual policy consequences, it seems clear to me the direction we're moving in. We talked earlier about the kind of global effort to fight the coronavirus getting somewhat subsumed by this 
largely American instigated competition and rivalry between the US and China. And this is a really big step in deepening that trend of that kind of America versus China campaign sort of overtaking everything. Um, because now even the Hong Kong issue is getting wrapped into that and subsumed by it, by the U.S. taking these steps that sure seem intended to punish the Chinese government and do that, but they sure also punish the hell out of Hong Kong, and the Hong Kongers were supposedly trying to help by restricting travel. Um, and it's just this very clear trend of taking up an issue like Hong Kong or the coronavirus and then using it as a cudgel to hurt China in ways that also worsen the issue that supposedly necessitated hitting China in the first place. Uh, and you really see that irony in the U.S. now restricting travel for Hong Kongers. Um, you see it in the U.S. cutting off the World Health Organization. I mean, like, I, I keep trying to process this. So, like, as punishment for the WHO not moving to investigate the outbreak in China with sufficient speed or rigor, we're going to cut off the WHO from investigating the now much larger outbreak in the United States altogether. So you're going to respond to an earlier failure in international public health coordination by creating a second and much larger failure that is going to rebound principally on the country that President Trump is in charge of, the United States. I, I think it's just really telling that this came out just a day after Trump issued his executive order saying he would strip Section 230 liability protections from Twitter. Um, like with the WHO with all, that executive order doesn't really make any sense as a policy because it's almost certain to achieve the exact opposite of its stated goal by removing those protections that all but forces Twitter to do more regulation of speech on the platform when Trump has made very clear his whole complaint is that he wants them doing less regulation of speech, namely his speech. If the executive order makes more sense if you just see it as an attempt to bully Twitter into abetting his political messaging, into letting him say whatever he wants. And I think it's reasonable to suspect that the WHO order might have similar intent um, to bully the WHO into downplaying his failures in the United States, which is something he's been asking for for a while, and playing up those of his perceived political rivals, in this case, those of China, because he finds that to be useful. But in the absence of having the WHO to kind of play into his America versus China narrative, he's just he's just going to create one. Um, and there's obviously a political question of, oh, does that work? Does it land with voters? And I, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. Um, but I think that the international diplomatic consequences and the public health consequences seem likely to be uh, very real. Well, thanks a lot, Max, for taking the time to record that little coda. Uh, really appreciate it. Oh, God, so much more to talk about. Max Fisher, thank you so much for joining. Um, you really are, uh, somebody who I think everyone should be following, um, not, not just in your columns in, in the interpreter in, in the Times, but, uh, on Twitter, you are, is Max underscore Fisher? Is that? Yeah, right? that's me. 
All right. I mean, follow Max. He's got lots of really smart, smart things to say. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, yeah. Before, I mean, I'm really glad you listened to the show, too. And uh, I look forward to having you on again because uh, this was just really enjoyable, even if it was incredibly depressing. Yeah, I'd love to. And I, I actually, I, I should have mentioned at the top, name dropping Seneca was a, a part of how I got my job at the Times. I was oh. interviewing with with Joe Kahn and I was trying to find some way to show off to him. And I said, oh, yeah, I just <laughs> listened to a Seneca podcast on my way over here. And he was very impressed by that. So thank you ah, for lovely. the uh, the job. <laughs> Great. So before we let you go, uh, let's get to our recommendation segment. Uh, first, a word on how you can help us out. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today's SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com and help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, on to recommendations. Uh, What do you have for us, Max? So I felt like, given my relatively weak China credentials, I should come up with some China-specific recommendations. Um, I suspect everyone who listens to this podcast has already seen The Farewell, which is this incredible movie that came out mm. last year. Yeah. But for the four people who haven't, um, I, I really cannot recommend it enough. It's a great quarantine watch. It's this fuzzy, heartwarming, surprising story about uh, a woman in New York who goes back to China against the wishes of her parents to be with a grandmother whose family has decided not to tell her that she has a terminal illness. And it's just, it's a wonderful movie. I remember hearing this story first on This American Life. Um, I think it was Stephanie Fu who had put that one together. But uh, I actually thought at the time, wow, this would make a really good movie. And the next thing you I know, sh- I mean... You should have optioned it. I should have optioned it. And now Aquafina is taking all... Yeah, no, anyway. <laughs> uh, that's great. Great recommendation. Uh, I'm going to recommend something. I, not too long ago, we had uh, Brendan Shulman on. Uh, he's the VP of legal and, and public policy at uh, at DJI. And he recommended uh, 
his wife's work, Dara Horn. Uh, she's a she's a novelist. So on his recommendation, I actually picked up Eternal Life, which is her her most recent novel. Uh, if you are interested in Judaica, this is this is a particularly good novel because it's the protagonist who you know it, it takes place in the current you know amid uh, virtual currencies and the damn blockchain. I'm just so tired of hearing about goddamn blockchain. But anyway, <laughs> um, but but um, she this is a woman who has lived you know she's sort of doomed to live and and has lived since first century AD you know in the years before the zealots and the Sakari and Masada and all that. Uh, and it, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, it really does take you on this, this, this millennia spanning, uh, journey through this one, one woman's eyes. It's a great love story at the heart of it, too. So, uh, I'm, I'm now going to read a bunch of her other books because she's a very gifted writer indeed. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I think maybe I'll save it for next time. I'll do a full blown endorsement f- f- next time, uh, for, Ezra Klein's book, which there's a lot to say about. It was just great, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, Max, man. I can't wait to have you back on. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, Kaiser, it was a pleasure, and uh, thank you again. All right, we'll talk to you soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News. And make sure to check out our other fine podcasts, including the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, which is back and better than ever. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.